Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday the 20th of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, as usual, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the Patrick uh, programme, Patrick. Thanks, Mike. Good to be with you. Right. And uh, well, with much anticipation in the chat box, we got to get heading over to New Zealand and the resignation of Jacinda Ardern. That's right, Mike. You know, it's a lot of gloom and doom sometimes on this news programme, and we don't often get a chance to do a real true feel-good story. But once in a while, they do come around on the news cycle. And this is one of those. Jacinda Ardern has announced her resignation, and it couldn't come too soon for a lot of uh, New Zealand residents. But um, let's just look at the reaction here from uh, the walkabout pub somewhere in New Zealand. Let's uh, take a look at the announcement and how people reacted. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. And then my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. Well, now, the full disclosure, that's a, a really famous mem template that a lot of people use, so it's not an actual, that's not actual footage from <laughs> New Zealand. But uh, nonetheless, so Mike, you know, um, it's, uh, yeah, they finally put this, this horse out to pasture. Um, so uh, there's a lot of people making a lot of uh, accusations and theories. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of denials on the part of the government. Um, and uh, so let's, let's look at what the, the press is saying here. Of course, you can expect the Guardian's going to be defending her right to the hilt. Uh, it's worth pointing out Jacinda Ardern is a protege of Tony Blair. She really cut her teeth working for Tony. So, you know, she, Tony Blair made her into the political figure, uh, go figure uh, that she's become. Uh, but here's what The Guardian are saying. This is the reason why she's uh, uh, resigned here because of abuse and threats uh, that's contributed to her resignation. Here's Kate Hanna, someone we featured on the program last week from the Disinformation Project. Uh, in, in down in Auckland, at the Auckland University here. And she's saying that uh, there was a, th their think tank has uh, charted a significant increase in abuse, threatening material directed at Ardern, and believe it had likely contributed to her leaving the role. That's but, not what she said in her departure speech, but... No, but correct me if I'm wrong, uh, this type of thing in the past would have been called political activism? Would have been you know, criticism of public figures and things like that. So you know this this leads us to another pro problem, Mike. And besides that, you know this disinformation project is right. just unbelievable in the amount of propaganda they put out. But the, the, their politicians and some, especially in small countries, have a real problem, Mike, dealing with criticism. Mm -hmm. And you can see this this sort of backlash, this visceral reaction from the state. They don't like it. They don't like the fact that Twitter provides this sort of level playing field mm. where Joe Public and the plebs, the deplorables, get to touch famous people by tagging them in tweets and the criticism, the memes and things like this, they're horrified by it. Mm. And we'll, we'll, we'll tell you why that is, because especially in the case of Jacinda Ardern, she has cultivated a certain type of political brand and she's really traded off that, Mike. And I think we've, we've all seen that, we've reported on it here right. and other outlets have. But uh, just further on here on this one, uh, so the scope of what we've observed over the last three years is such that there's no way it could not have been a contributing factor for any person, said Kate Hanna from the Disinformation Project, who gets government funding, by the way. Mm. So state-funded think tanks and media commenting about the government they've been trying to protect uh, for three years. Um, so that's an interesting development there. And so let's look at 
the, the rest of the conversation on this. What, what's the real reason, Mike, uh, why she's resigning? She says it's because she wants to spend more time with her family because mm -hmm. there's nothing left in the tank, she said. Yeah. Uh, and what else? Um, the, the, the demands of the job are just too much. And she, she's human and she wants to get back to her real life. But the reality is there's a general election coming up. And her party has been tanking in the polls and she herself, her approval rating is really dropped massively. Uh, they're looking at a huge defeat in the upcoming general election. As her as leader, maybe her party could do better without her because she's very unpopular, despite what the global media and the World Economic Forum crowd and The Guardian like to portray her as. Right. Um, so here's the real reason here. Uh, here's just a little highlight reel of her. No, no, before we get to that, there's one more quote here that I think we need to mention because this is really important. Uh, the final thing Kate said, well, sorry, if we just bring that back on screen, uh, Kate Hanna we're talking about here, and the final thing she said uh, was about death threats. Uh, uh, yes. And this is really important because we were just talking the other day, Patrick, about death threats, uh, the imagery around death threats, uh, the Oxford Co uh, County Council getting death threats over the 15-minute city program that they've got going on. Every time we see criticism uh, political criticism or criticism of the action, the actions of of think tanks or others, the t the term death threat is immediately brought up. So we're getting this constant narrative that anybody that's critical of of the mainstream uh, policy agenda is somehow an extremist who is threatening to kill. And they don't explicitly say death threats, as you look up on this quote here. Um, incredibly violent use of imagery around death threats. Right. And they're trying to associate that with Jacinda Ardern. They don't give any specific examples of it. Right. It's just generally, oh, it's really negative and it's abusive and so forth. But, you know, you have to remember, this is somebody who locked down the whole country for one PCR positive case, destroyed the economy, mm. uh, and really just created a whole atmosphere of misery for so many people, shut down schools, and was, many will argue that she was abusive. Her government were abusive of their electorate. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the defenders of Ardern saying, no, no, it's the online uh, trolling and things like that. No, not really. Let's take a look at uh, some of her finer moments over the last couple of years. Stay local and do not congregate. Don't talk to your neighbors. Please keep to your bubbles. It comes down again to those very simple principles. We know from overseas uh, cases of the Delta variant that it can be spread by people simply walking past one another. So keep those movements outside to the bare minimum. If someone refuses in our um, facilities to be tested, they have to keep staying. So they won't be able to leave after 14 days. They have to stay on for another 14 days. So it's a pretty good incentive. You either get your tests done and make sure you're cleared, or we will keep you in a facility longer. So I think people, most people, will look at that and say, "I'll take the, I'll take the test." You can now see family and friends again in their homes, and use the bathroom inside. Luxury. Any time to clarify any room you make here, COVID19.govt.nz. Otherwise dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. We will provide... Your single source of truth. That is just such an incredible statement at the end. 
Yeah, I mean, and really patronizing as well. And she's kind of this uh, attitude and she's cultivated, does a lot of these acting skits that they push out mm -hmm. as propaganda. She's constantly making a show of herself. Here's one where she's doing one of her, you know, selfies there. It's kind of, so, but th this is one of the government funded COVID stuff that we featured last week. Even some of their journalists were saying this government promises to be open and transparent, but it is artfully, it, uh, is an artfully crafted uh, image here. And this is uh, Andrea Vance. And this is what she said. In my 20-year career as a journalist, this government is one of the most thin-skinned and secretive I have ever experienced. Many of my colleagues stay the same. So that's the real story of Jacinda Ardern from pro-government journalists mm. even. That's how bad it is in New Zealand. And sort of the Guardian isn't giving you any bit of a whiff of any of this reality, by the way. Mm. Um, they're just there to protect her uh, political brand. Um, so I think that's interesting. And even squeezing basic facts out of an agency is frustrating, torturous, and often a futile exercise. Wow, sound familiar, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> so it's pretty bad down in New Zealand. So Jacinda Ardern wasn't looking good. This is probably one of the best takes I've seen. Ross Clark at the Telegraph, and this headline says it all. Poor Jacinda Ardern, defeated by her own vanity. She believed her own myth that she was the most virtuous leader in the world. Then came the consequences of her disastrous actions. This is actually an incredibly insightful article here in the Telegraph. And this is what Ross Clark uh, has to say here. Um, I don't claim to be able to read her mind, but I would guess that her real reason for resigning ahead of the New Zealand's general election later this year uh, was not primarily uh, that she wanted to collect her daughter from playgroup every day, as she intimated, um, but that she could no longer cope with her halo having slipped. Very well said, uh, Mr. Ross Clark. And he goes on, uh, when you have built up into a living saint, it must come as a shock to find yourself under attack for failing to address the same old problems which afflict less progressive national leaders. Inflation, a stuttering economy, rising crime are hardly unique to New Zealand, but they showed that they were nothing, there was nothing magical about Ardern's politics. The only difference is that in her case, she lacked the toughness to weather serious adversity. Very strong criticism there from Ross Clark, but so true, Mike, so true. The, the, this magical uh, saint-like image that they crafted for her um, it is just totally imploded. She knows it. That's why she's cutting and running. She's been in office six years, um, hardly a dynasty by anyone's measure. Usually right. it's the 10-year mark, isn't it? Um, but anyway, so we'll go here, and just to remind her here, she's constantly patronizing minority groups and trying to paint this kind of universal, ethnically friendly um, leader of the world. I guess world president is probably the right term uh, of what she was trying to cultivate, much like Tony Blair, the Barack Obama-style globalist leadership. Here she is after the Christchurch shooting, um, and you know that, that's the money shot, getting that sort of face, the hijab, in the mosque and then apologizing for historic injustices against Native Americans by uh, offering herself up for a, uh, a Maori ceremony. I mean, a lot of people would call this theatrics um, and politically, but this is what Ardern did. This is how she um, developed her brand. And that was her success, at least in the international 
community and up until COVID, and then things went a little bit wrong, Mike, and this is what happened afterwards, and this is really, this is why her popularity was plummeting. These were the protests that have just put so much pressure on the government there, and this is a very small country, New Zealand, so, I mean, when you have a couple hundred thousand people out um, in Wellington, that's significant. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's the equivalent of 300,000 or a million camping in London at the capital. And the police were, had to be very heavy-handed at the end um, because the government just couldn't take the public relations disaster of people uh, going against the lockdowns, the vaccine mandates, and so forth. So this is, you know, that's the real story of her fall from grace. And this is why her party is tanking right. uh, in the polls. But there's actual another scandal lurking behind the scenes that we want to bring people's attention to. And um, let's just take a look at this. This is on Substack. This is Cranmere's Substack. This is a two-part article. I really encourage everybody to read it. The government is implicated in a really, really potentially damaging scandal regarding the approval and pushing vaccines on children. The government seems to have downplayed and ignored expert advice, even from their own scientific committee, about the dangers to children, specifically to do with myocarditis. Okay, so there's there's a lot in here. These are two very long and extensive uh, articles here, but there there is clear evidence in the official documents that it was agreed that references to increasing dosing intervals as a method of potentially providing some protection against myocarditis should be removed from public communications. That's just a little taste of it. There was a reluctance within government to fully articulate the myocarditis risk to young people, provide them with advice, for instance, on resting after vaccination, as was given in Singapore, and give consideration to offering the adenovirus vector vaccine to young males. That's in part one. Part two, this is an interesting passage here, Mike. Consideration should be given to permitting younger people who have had one dose to be permitted to work or undertake other activities covered by the mandate. So this shows you how they were strong-arming even young people mm. with the vaccine mandate. And the, the acknowledgement that there was a risk of myocarditis, but even the government saying, well, just spread the doses out. What a nightmare yeah. this is. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Within this scandal could it potentially explode. And legally, in terms of liability, and things like that, this is just the beginning. And I think Ardern knew about this uh, it, they, they saw the writing on the wall, and it was a good time to jump ship. Right. So they'll rehabilitate her image and hopefully get her back at Davos next uh, January. Well, hopefully for them, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully the, for us, because it's always a comedy show. But That's but, the plan. Yes. That's the plan. Indeed. Okay, well, speaking of Davos, uh, of course, it is the end for this year. This year. So, yeah, it's been a, been a really eventful week at Davos. How can we best describe it? comedy show it's a yeah clown world absolutely uh, to the high of the highest order everyone's just they're desperate absolutely desperate so we have some very choice clips to share okay with so you. let's have a look at the first one this is uh radio davos this is radio davos so this is the, one of the overarching themes uh this is antonio gutierrez secretary general of the un talking here they had their own radio station and this would pipe through all the communications during the week on site but listen listen to this this is really important. This will set the agenda here. And from the heart of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting 2023, this is Radio Davos. We risk what I've called the great fracture. 
the decoupling of the world's two largest economies. At a Davos meeting whose theme is collaboration in a fragmented world, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns of a rising polarization. Tectonic drift that would create two different sets of trade rules, two dominant currencies, two internets, and two conflicting strategies on artificial intelligence. This is the last thing we need. And as global climate change is being felt more and more around the world, he makes clear his opposition to continued fossil fuel exploration. This insanity belongs in science fiction, yet we know the ecosystem meltdown is cold, hard, scientific fact. So that, that, that's, those are the big themes. Uh, we need to, it's a fractured world and we need to come together and collaborate here. Let's just summarize that. It's very important that we uh, understand this. Uh, here. So collaboration in a fractured world. Uh, and so the problem, according to the World Economic Forum here, uh, is this fracturing. Two trade rules, two different trade rules, two global organizations for trade, uh, two dominant currencies, uh, two reserve currencies, two internets. And there's a, here's the important one, two AI strategies. Now, when, when you look at this, you can see the, the potential, the, the main players at Davos are responsible for this division that's happened in the world, right. especially post-Ukraine, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. So the sanctions, the bifurcation of the global economy, global system. And so just back to that, um, back to that slide, the AI component is really important. And the AI component, the reason is, Mike, because AI is going to become a major, uh, in terms of fifth or sixth generation warfare, okay? If there's no international agreements on artificial intelligence, the potential for chaos is immense. Yes, as we move towards autonomous weaponry and uh, swarms of drones and swarms of cyber. boats and cyber and this kind of stuff. Fully automated, nonstop cyber, yeah. don't even need humans involved in it, and yeah. it could just take on a life of its own. So this is what they're concerned about. My question is, they're doing everything possible to make sure that these problems are going to persist. Sure. Um, so this is the big problem here. So that's Elena Zelensky. She's uh, called now the first lady according to uh, our news agencies, so that she's right. the first lady, not the U.S. first lady, it's Elena Zelensky. She spoke, and she uh, has a solution to fight climate change. Excellent. How does the world want to achieve climate neutrality if so far it hasn't even stopped the burning of entire cities in Ukraine. This is what Russia is doing with its artillery, with its missiles, with its Iranian drones. And you know that the Russian aggression was never intended to restrict itself to the Ukrainian borders. This war can go further and it, it make crises wider if the aggressor does not lose. So there's been this sort of undercurrent of war at Davos, but it's only an undercurrent. Absolutely the main theme was climate change. It is climate change. But Ukraine's there in the background. That's the sort of the high marquee ticket item. But she's saying uh, Russian artillery in Ukraine is, is causing climate change. Mm. So this is an interesting theory by Zelensky's wife. So uh, we'll put that to the, the scientific uh, committees to mull over. I don't know. That sounds more like science fiction to me. Uh, not according to Antonio Gutierrez, though. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, she was speaking quite calmly and uh, get, attempting to get her message, as such as it was, across uh, in a fairly normal kind of way. Uh, not everybody was quite so calm. 
Yeah, they weren't. So she's conflating all this stuff. It's crazy. You, you might look at that statement by her and say, she's a bit nuts. She's not fully there, not playing with a full deck. And then comes Al Gore, and it takes it to a whole nother level. I'm Honestly, Mike, just let's just watch this. And the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the Earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century. Look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world. We have to act. So in answer to your question, I would say we have to have a sense of urgency much greater than we have yet had. And we need have had and we need to make some changes. This just really reiterates what I thought all along, Mike, that the biggest source of hot air on the planet is Al Gore mm. uh, himself. 600,000 Hiroshima bombs being dropped every day. The oceans are boiling. Do you know anywhere on the planet where the oceans are boiling? Not yet. We haven't seen it. We know the kettles boil, but not the oceans. Rain bombs, that's a new one. What's a rain bomb? That's the first time I've heard that. That sounds pretty scary. Um, and one billion climate refugees. One billion climate refugees. Really, what, from sea level rises, or exactly how does that work? Is he talking about droughts? regional droughts. Well, those have been going on for a couple of million years. Yes. So that's not exactly man-made climate change. They're highly unspecific, total hyperbole, total demagoguery. Al Gore is getting so desperate right now. I've never seen him. He's, he's freaking out. He's, he, he's, he's shouting because he's saying, we need, to be, we need to take this seriously now. We need to get excited and angry about this now. And what he was spewing there is just unbelievable. Uh, but not the only one, John Kerry. Yeah, so this is more the new age craziness here. John Kerry, the octogenarian climate czar, Biden's climate czar, who, who's kind of saying some funny things. Um, we're, we're calling this new age Davos uh, here. John Kerry is kind of calling on our better aliens to come and help fight climate change. No one knows exactly what he meant here, but he says, so when you start to think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, a select group of human beings at Davos, uh, because whatever touched us at some point in our lives, are able to sit in a room and come together and actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, in terms of self-aggrandizing, yeah, this is really new, a new level, a new level here. So the great and the good, and Kerry continues. I mean, it's almost extraterrestrial to think about saving the planet. If you say that to most people, most people think you're just crazy, tree-hugging, lefty liberal, you know, do-gooder, or whatever. And there's no relationship, but really, that's where we are. So that's how these people kind of envision themselves as this sort of elite, um, uh, smart, the smartest people, the most uh, uh, powerful, skillful people coming together, technocrats, to save the planet from man-made carbon dioxide heating up the atmosphere. That's the basic theory, but like there's no science that actually proves this. There's no evidence that man-made carbon dioxide is creating any significant warming. 
it's really all in computer models. And that is the basis of that little pit of the IPCC that they've all cherry-picked um, to say that there's a climate catastrophe coming by the end of the century. So, But, uh, you know, if there's one person on this planet that I would trust to save the world, it would be Tony Blair. Right. Yeah, he was at Davos as well. He, that, that, that ghoul is, is still roaming around in public, which is a small miracle in itself that he's allowed to circulate amongst the population. But, but anyway, he's at Davos. So uh, Tony Blair. And what could Tony Blair possibly have to offer the world when they get together to save humanity? This is what Tony has to offer. I think there's a huge impetus now for a national digital infrastructure. Digitization in, in healthcare is, I think, one of the great game changers. You know, we should be helping countries to develop a national digital infrastructure, which they will need with these new vaccines. And then, you know, finally, it, it, it's, it's also about showing people and showing the political leadership that you can make a positive difference to your healthcare system by adopting these measures because they've got, a, they've got an impact beyond any particular disease and, or, or, or pandemic. So he's sitting there next to Berla from Pfizer. Yes. And he's talking about these new vaccines. We need a digital infrastructure for these new vaccines, these mRNA vaccines. What's he talking about? Why do we need a new digital infrastructure for these new vaccines? He didn't come out and say it, Mike, but he's talking about vaccine passports. Right. And so Tony was pushing this for the last couple of years. He was haunting us. He was uh, harassing the public with his vaccine passport, uh, pushing the vaccine passports on everybody. Um, he wasn't invited to do so. He's not a doesn't hold office. Nobody knows quite what Tony does. Um, but anyway, uh, he claims that, that that's a really important priority for for humanity. Um, to get more mRNA vaccines into people's arms and track them. But if, if you want to track them, is that with tracking comes mandate? Yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Well, here's some reactions from uh, Twitter on, uh, on Tony Blair and why uh, would we need a digital infrastructure with these new mRNA vaccines, says Lang. Um, are they moving to mandate mRNA vax and control your movement if you refuse to take them like they did attempt to do with COVID already? This is true. They did do this already. How soon we forget. And uh, this is eyes, or so eyes on the Horizon says, the irony of insisting on the implementation and tracking of vaccinations to save lives while contemporaneously uh, decrying the overpopulation of the earth and drag on resources makes my hair hurt. <laughs> yeah. Very nice, very nicely said. So yeah, that, that, that's a conversation that they're having at Davos. Again, these are, a lot of these are just unacceptable. They're, they're dead in the water for a lot of the public. Right. But in their conversation up there on those high level panels, these are still priorities. That's the thing that I think is amazing about the World Economic Forum is how detached it is from what most people feel and think. Um, but when we say that the war narrative was sort of under an undercurrent of the whole thing, uh, they rolled out or they let him out of hospital for a day or wherever he is, Henry Kissinger. I think he was piped in remotely, but yes. he's 99. So, you know, Henry's getting on a bit. So he's uh, he, he's changed his position. This is significant. So he's like the luminary. He's changed his his, he, last year, Mike, he said after the invasion of Russia, he says, uh, 
NATO should not be trying to coax Ukraine into membership. Mm. Ukraine should be neutral. Otherwise, there's going to be instability and potential war nonstop. So he's now, for some reason, maybe someone's got to him, who knows. But uh, this is what he says. Before the war, I was opposed to the membership of Ukraine and NATO because I feared it would start exactly the process we are seeing now. And it did. Uh, he said, but now, he says, the idea of a neutral Ukraine in these conditions is no longer meaningful. It's hard to know why he changed his mind on this, Mike. It's really difficult. I don't see the logic in it. But then he is 99. So he's, is, is it fair to say he might not be at the top of his game mm. uh, intellectually and cognitively? I think that's fair to say. Uh, well, one person who hasn't changed their mind is Jens Stoltenberg, uh, never the sharpest tool in the box. Uh, but it got even worse at Davos. And if we thought, uh, you know, Mr. Gore was uh, off his head uh, there, really, there's some things to be said about Stoltenberg. Let's have a quick listen to what he said. It is extremely important that President Putin doesn't win this war, partly because it will be a tragedy for the Ukrainians but it will be very dangerous for all of us. Because then the message to authoritarian leaders, not only to Putin, but also other authoritarian leaders, is that when they use brutal force, when they violate international law, they achieve what they want. And that will be a very bad and dangerous lesson. It will make, make the world more dangerous and us more vulnerable. And that's the reason why, uh, if we want a negotiated peaceful solution to the war in Ukraine, we need to provide military support to Ukraine. That's the only way. Uh, weapons, uh, uh, they are the way to peace. So let's just put on screen what he said at the end there. Weapons are the way to peace, Patrick. There you go. Weapons are the way to peace. And he doubled down on this, uh, tweeting this out uh, this morning. Uh, my message to the World Economic Forum to achieve peace tomorrow, Ukraine needs more weapons today. So there we go. Uh, that's what we have to say. Now, in the meantime, uh, if we move on to Ukraine and so on, uh, the Ramstein event uh, conference, whatever you want to call it, 2023 is taking place. This is the eighth meeting uh, that they've had uh, and the second that they've had since the, uh, since the beginning of the war. Uh, so here is uh, our very own defense secretary, uh, ben Wallace and also the Chief of the Defence Staff there behind, uh, Admiral Sir Tony Radican. Uh, so they've arrived at Ramstein Air Base for the eighth Defence Contact Group talks uh, with what they describe as allies and partners about ongoing support for Ukraine and security issues. Um, and uh, this meeting uh, is going to, uh, as we say, of course, be talking about tanks, which we're going to come on to in a second. Now, yesterday, Somebody else who's appearing at this meeting, of course, is uh, Lloyd Austin. But yesterday he was meeting the new German defense minister uh, who is uh, called Boris uh, uh, Pistorius. Uh, now, he's uh, getting a bit of criticism at the moment because he likes the Russians quite a bit. Uh, but they were meeting uh, yesterday because Lloyd Austin was there to try and put pressure on Germany to sort of release the brakes on the supply of tanks to Ukraine. He just became a defense minister of Germany. Just a couple of days he, ago, yes. The, uh, yes. She, the former... Uh, uh, she resigned. She, she fled uh, under pressure, uh, I'm told. So that's interesting. So Germany's really important because obviously it's one of the leading EU countries. Uh, they're being kind of positioned to take a, maybe a bigger role in NATO. Right. Sort of, but not really. But so they're really putting a lot of pressure on Olaf Scholz 
that he needs to deliver the tanks, he needs to send more arms, do more for Zelensky, do more for Ukraine. And if he doesn't, it's a bad look for NATO and for Europe. So here's what the German Bundestag uh, decided uh, just yesterday, Mike. Uh, they've said no, no leopard tanks for Zelensky. So the German parliament voted this down. This is big news. And what's even more interesting, Mike, is what was said on the floor of the German parliament. Um, after this vote. Let's take a look uh, at that. So we have some, some footage here. So it, it, what was interesting is um, this particular parliamentarian here, um, he's basically citing uh, World War II. He's saying that sending German tanks to a war against Russia and Ukraine, our grandfathers already tried this, and uh, it failed miserably. Um, unspeakable suffering, millions of dead on both sides, and finally Russian tanks in Berlin. Foreign policy is not sending tanks, but it should be diplomacy, he says. Um, and that's the opposite of the message that Jan Stoltenberg mm. is sending there. So that's a big thing. So again, despite all the pressure, the public will isn't there. The, the politicians aren't into it. It seems like there's almost like the Germans are become, you know, they're, they're, they're waking up from their slumber a little bit. Mm. The hype of Ukraine is fading. Reality is setting in economic reality, political reality, the politicians are feeling it, Mike, in Germany, I think. Mm. And so we'll see if they're uh, going to stay in their in their uh, parliamentary seats in the next election if they're supporting this. So this is what the U.S. is saying about tanks. They're not going to send them either, Mike. So the M1 Abrams tanks, which is the marquee uh, armored vehicle uh, in the U.S. arsenal, they said, no, we're not going to send them to Zelensky. Why? And one of the main reasons here, Mike, is that there's a tremendous amount of support staff um, and maintenance staff, that technical uh, support that's required to deploy um, even a small um, group of Abrams tanks. Now, so what are you saying, that they're worried that the perception would be they're actually taking a direct role themselves and being drawn into direct conflict with Russia? Is that, is that the concern? 100%. They're, they're, they will need more tanks because um, if the U.S. just gives a couple of Abrams tanks, let's say they gave some uh, piddly amount like 14 or 12 or something like that, it'd be kind of a joke. And, but still, for 14 Abrams tanks, you'd have dozens of support technical staff right. to put a proper complement, like what they, the Iraqi military had after U.S. occupation. It's a huge amount of staff required from that. And uh, if the U.S. withdrew that staff, those tanks would not work. They'd be dead in the water. The Iraqi army found that out the week before ISIS invaded Mosul. Mm -hmm. The U.S. magically withdrew its support for the technical technical support for the Abrams tanks just a couple of weeks before ISIS uh, appeared on the scene in July of 2014. That was an interesting coincidence, wasn't it? Yeah. But anyway, um, so what about Britain, Mike? What have, they, what have they got to offer? I think they're going to be delivering. 14. 14. Ah, so Defense Secretary announces combat power package. Combat power package for Ukraine. Let's take a look. There he is. Now, this is the Army website, we have to say. So that's the British Army's headline. That is. That is. They do their own in-house PR there. So there, there's Defense Secretary Ben Wallace talking to the T-shirt guy, uh, Zelensky, in Kiev. He's wearing a black T-shirt. That looks very nice. Sporting. And this is what Wallace said two days ago. Today's package is an important increase in Ukraine's capabilities. It means that they can go from res resisting to expelling Russian forces from Ukrainian soil. That's a big statement. Isn't it? So so he he's saying what Britain's going to give them is going to expel Russia 
from Ukrainian soil. So they must be giving a lot. How much are they giving? Well, 14 Challenger tanks. Is that going to make a difference? Well, I don't know. Look, we found an interesting graphic, though. This is the world's top 25 fleets of combat tanks. And uh, we'll, we'll look at this list, but here, we'll just give your attention to number one. That's Russia. And uh, how many have they got there? This is 20, 2022 numbers here, Mike. 12,566 tanks. And um, we'll check Britain as well. See if we can find them in the top 25. Not there. Still, I can't find Britain. Do you see Britain? No, Britain's not on that list. Britain's not in the top 25. Cuba's in the top 25. So Cuba's got, yeah, they've got a thousand uh, tanks. But oh, there's Ukraine, Mike. There's Ukraine. 1,890 tanks next to Russia's 12,566. So add 14. <laughs> Add 14 to that, and you can see that's a massive upgrade for Ukraine and pushing Russia out. Now Ukraine has 1,000, how much is that? 1,904? Yeah. Is that right? Yes. So, so, you know, things are looking good for Kiev. Things are looking up after this uh, new package, this power package, power defense package. So let's just take a look at this again here. The prime minister is set to accelerate the UK's diplomatic and military support to Ukraine uh, in the weeks ahead in a bid to push Russia further back and securing a lasting peace. Well, what do you think the odds of that happening in the next couple of months are? Nice round number, Patrick. I don't know. Uh, UK defense and security officials believe, Mike, believe there's a window of opportunity. A window has opened up, they say, where Russia is on the back foot due to resupply issues and plummeting morale. So the resupply issues, I find that hard to believe, seeing that Russia is right next door. But anyway, we'll leave that to the side. The allies are therefore being encouraged to deploy their planned support for 2023 as soon as possible to have maximum impact. But like, what are they deploying? They don't seem to have much to deploy. Germany doesn't want to deploy. The US isn't deploying much. Britain's deploying 14 Challenger tanks and uh, a few other items as well. But this idea that Russia is on the back foot, have they not been saying this for the last year? Year, and Ukraine, Ukraine's losing territory um, uh, by, the, by leaps and bounds by the day, and they'll continue to do so. So I don't know who's on the back foot here. I don't think it's Russia per se, but anyway, we'll take his word for it for the moment. Let's take a look at what else is in the power package here. Uh, squadron of Ch Challenger tanks, of course. Uh, the donation of around 30 uh, a, uh, AS-90 guns. 30 guns, that might be useful, maybe. Uh, hundreds more armored and protected vehicles will also be sent. They're not specific, and they don't say when. Do you think, what are they talking about here? Jeeps, maybe cars, um, SUVs? Who knows? We don't know, and may, will they ever be sent? Doesn't matter, really. It's It makes for a good press release, though. Um, a, quote, maneuver support package, including minefield breaching and bridging capabilities worth 28, 28 million quid. Okay, dozens of uncrewed aerial systems. What are those? Is that, are those drones? Yes. Drones worth 20 million. Um, doesn't say how many, just that it's worth 20 million. So according to the uh, defense contractor price catalog, it's worth 20 million. It could be one drone. It could be 10. It could be 20. We don't know. 
uh, to support the Ukrainian military. Mike, so when you see the word worth, it's almost like they're trying to market this to give it a little more sizzle. So it's just like worth 20 million, sort of special offer. Buy now worth get, and get a 20 million pound value. Another 100,000 artillery rounds on top of the 100,000 already delivered. So they were really making a point to say, we've already given 100,000 rounds uh, in the last 12 months, and we're gonna give 100,000 more. How many days of artillery is that on the front line? What's that worth? Maybe five, six mm -hmm. days? something like that. And we don't know what type of artillery that is. They talk about mortars, grad rockets. If it's grad rockets, you know, that's five or six days of shelling civilian areas in Donetsk for the Ukrainian uh, military. Uh, hundreds more, quote, sophisticated missiles, including uh, GMLRS rockets, Starstreak air defense missiles, and uh, medium-range air defense missiles, unspecific as to what those are or how many they are, but they're, they're saying hundreds, Mike. Mm. This looks like a big package, but really what's actually in there? An equipment support package of spares to refurbish up to 100 Ukrainian tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. How is that possible when most of their tanks are Russian-made tanks? Does Britain have spare parts for Russian tanks? What are we talking about here? Uh, Spanners. It makes no sense. It could be spanners. Spanners. Nuts, bolts. Nuts, bolts, screws, screwdrivers, hammers. We don't know. It's very unspecific. But as a whole package, Mike, isn't it look like a good special offer? It's a brilliant special offer. It looks like an attractive special offer. So uh, we may buy that. We may buy that. So anyway, that's, that's where that's at, Mike. Um, is it going to make a big difference? Is it going to push Russia back? Um, mm. We don't think so. Don't think so. Right, okay, if you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and uh, your membership be very, very welcome and much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share material that you find on the various platforms. Now, I want to move on to Sergei Lavrov because uh, he was giving a briefing, a foreign ministry briefing a day or two ago, and he had a couple of interesting things to say. So let's have a look. Uh, here he is. Uh, he said, like Napoleon, who mobilized nearly all of Europe against the Russian Empire and Hitler, who occupied the majority of European countries and hurled them at the Soviet Union, uh, the United States has created a coalition of nearly all European member states of NATO and the EU and is using Ukraine to wage a proxy war against Russia with the old aim of finally solving the Russian question, like Hitler, who sought the final solution to the Jewish question. Uh, so he's uh, played that card once again. Uh, the signing of the joint declaration on EU-NATO cooperation on the 10th of January was the high point of this process, something that's been in the making for years. Uh, it states explicitly that the alliance and the EU's goal is to use all political, economic and military means in the interests of the golden billion. Uh, the, in the so-called Indo-Pacific region, the West is out to create block architecture against Russia and China. And he is uh, really highlighting the fact uh, in this that th this is not just about what's going on in Europe. This is a global effort to start a global conflict. Um, and uh, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, very hard to criticize what he said, actually. No, go back to the Davos, the first, uh, the fractured world. So two systems, two reserve currencies, two military blocks, 
to uh, AI, to internets, mm. to uh, trade, trade, international trade bodies or something like this. So this is what they're talking about. So they're doing everything they possibly can, uh, the US, Britain, and NATO G7 countries to create that bifurcated world. Um, and yet they're saying it's going to be dangerous. It, it is the recipe for conflict. Yes. Because these are the conditions that led to uh, world wars in the past, and they most certainly will this time. I think people are very naive to think that uh, when you get into major competition for resources, finite, scarce resources, to, to for the fourth industrial revolution, lithium, cobalt, Congo could become a hotbed. Could of, become a new yes. Vietnam or a new Middle East. Yes, because that could become the new oil. That's exactly where this is heading. Yeah. Okay, so I think people are being very naive to not see this play out. And the other thing is, what, what's what's going to be fueling the electric car revolution, the electric grid that the West wants to change over all their fleets? It's fossil fuels. Right. So again, there's, there, there, none of this makes sense um, in terms of what what they're prescribing versus the reality. So these people are in, in a world of their own, and so Russia is being demonized and ostracized because it's one of the major providers of fossil fuels. They would need Russia for this major EV revolution because they still need to power their grids. Indeed. So let's move to France and, and uh, Emmanuel Macron. So Macron did this really marquee interview here with the sort of one of the top Spanish journalists, Javier Sarkas. And this is kind of, they, they really hyped this up in El Pais as a, as a major interview. Now, so they clearly stroked Macron's ego enough to get him to talk uh, somewhat unguarded, and he did say some very interesting things. The problem with Macron, Mike, is frustrating because he does pivot constantly. He mm. flip-flops constantly. But uh, let's look at what he said here, and it is interesting. Based on what Lavrov said and the conversations that we're talking about in Davos, here's what Macron says. The world is defined by the polarity between the U.S. and China, and Europe has yet to decide whether it wants to become a vassal of one of the two or pursue the path of freedom and solidarity, says French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, Macron has also insisted that Europe should be less dependent on NATO and pursue strategic autonomy from the U.S. military bloc. I'm going to say easier said than done. Yes. It's more likely that Europe would break up, um, <laughs> the EU would break up before NATO breaks up at the, at the moment. That's what it looks like. So there's a Frexit movement that is kind of getting some steam in France. There's other European countries that are not happy. Um, the economy is on tender hooks right. in Europe. And in France, they're particularly unhappy about the, ra the raise in the pension age, uh, which that's protests going on in the last week or two about that. A, a big protest, yes. million man march in France. Because they what they raise the pension age from sixty two to sixty four to sixty four. Yeah. So that'll get a million people out in the streets in France. Um, <laughs> I don't know about any other country, but probably not. But um, yeah. So you you have declining living standards. Then if if Macron comes in, tries to push another vaccine mandate or something like this, it's a powder keg that could explode. And there's a lot of people that just want out of the European Union especially because of Ukraine as well. They feel like they're being sucked into it, not just via NATO, but they're being sucked in via Brussels. Yes. Uh, the pressure on Russia in the meantime continues to build. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this statement released by the Office for Gordon and Sarah Brown calling for the creation 
of a special tribunal for the punishment of the crime of aggression against Ukraine. So that was released on the 6th of January. Uh, and it said, it was talking about acts of aggression, uh, traced back not to February invasion, but to the decision of the Russia's military and political leadership to attack and occupy Crimea, the city of Sevastopol and the Donbass from 2014 onwards. And so they're calling for uh, uh, a constitution of what's equivalent to Nuremberg trials, uh, termed the supreme international crime, uh, for it's the crime of aggression from which other, from which most other international crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide often flow. This is what they said. So they were talking about the International Criminal Court not, you know, has powers to investigate genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. However, it doesn't exercise jurisdiction in relation to crimes of aggression, so something else needed to take its place. Uh, and so they're talking about a special tribunal for the crime of aggression. And I was making the point that this is something that Zelensky had called for uh, back in October last year, and we must create a special tribunal on the crime of aggression against Ukraine. Uh, and uh, so that's a scripted talking it's point. It's a scripted it's... talking point. And in fact, the, the scripted talking point appeared to come from the Gordon Brown uh, Gordon Brown back in March 2022, as we can see on screen at the moment. Uh, and But this was something that uh, was in the mainstream media at the time. It's something that's been rumbling all the way through this last year. Well, everybody will be uh, perhaps unsurprised to know that in fact this is now being established and the UK is taking a leading role in it. So this is what James cleverly had to say. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is an outrageous violation of the rules-based international order. The atrocities we've witnessed in Ukraine are diabolical. Uh, these atrocities must not go unpunished. That's why the UK has accepted Ukraine's invitation to join this coalition, uh, bringing our legal expertise to the table uh, to explore options to ensure Russia's leaders are held to account fully for, the, for their actions. So they're talking about uh, setting up exactly this type of tribunal. Uh, it includes assessing the feasibility of a new hybrid tribunal, brackets a specialized court integrated into Ukraine's national justice system with international elements. Uh, an investigation into the crime of aggression could complement established mechanisms for investigating war crimes, uh, including the International Criminal Court and Ukraine's domestic legal system. Uh, in joining this additional core group focused on uh, crimes of aggression, the UK will complement its previous support in the pursuit of accountable, accountability for Russia's actions. Uh, and so who are they bringing on board? Uh, well, they're bringing on board this man, Sir Hard uh, Mar Morrison KC, uh, Master of the Bench of Grey's Inn, born in the UK in 1949, educated in schools in what was then West Germany and England. And then he did some voluntary work in Ghana, uh, but joined uh, as uh, the legal profession uh, after that. So um, they've uh, co-founded what they're calling, this is on top of what we've just been discussing, uh, the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group uh, with the US and the EU to directly support the War Crimes Unit and the Office for the Prosecutor General of, the, of Ukraine in its investigations. And Sir Hard Morrison is going to be the so-called independent advisor to the Euro Ukrainian prosecutor general. So, um, well, a campaign has been run and it seems like the British government getting 100% behind it. Listen, <laughs> I, I don't know where to start on this. There's so much, there's so many things that are wrong about it. But first off, in, in terms of Gordon Brown's statement, I'll start with Gordon Brown and the rest of them. It is disingenuous and intellectually dishonest if or lazy. The fact that when they talk about Russia's acts of aggression, uh, with regards to Crimea, 
to strip away all of the context of a U.S., a EU-backed coup d'etat, a violent coup in Kiev in 2014 that led directly to uh, the people in Crimea holding a referendum. Mm. Crimea's historic Russia, by the way, before 1953. Okay, so it, it was separated from Russia in a similar amount of time that East Germany was separated from West Germany, and they were reunited. But in the case of uh, the West, they don't say that Crimea reunited with Russia. They say Russia annexed it. Okay, semantics. But international law is actually on the side of Crimea. And this is the other part they're not talking about. There's two sides to the UN Charter. You do have the UN uh, territorial uh, sovereignty, but you also have self-determination. Mm -hmm. These are two sides of the UN coin. And it's totally disingenuous that uh, these le thought leaders and politicians in the West don't look at both sides. And worse, Angela Merkel's admission about the Minsk peace process mm -hmm. and how they intentionally sandbagged it in order so that it failed. That that's France, that's Germany, and behind the scenes, you can only just imagine who is working behind the scenes, okay? But to, to not even bring that up, it is their responsibility. They created the conditions for the war in Donbass, for the, uh, the ethnic cleansing or the ethnic targeting attacks by a U.S. and NATO-backed Ukrainian military, the arms buildup and all of this. They created the conditions for... Russia had no choice but to move, and they warned the West they were going to have to make um, some kind of serious moves if this isn't resolved diplomatically. So they totally sabotaged the diplomacy, the West did. And then now they're saying, oh, and it was Russia's act of aggression. It was Putin's war of choice. That's another scripted mm -hmm. term, Putin's war of choice. These are all marketing terms. And so the ICCC, the thing I noticed when I went to the International Criminal Court for the first time, okay, when I was given a tour, is that you, you go in the reception, Mike, and you look on the wall, and there's, there's, there's five or six people that they managed to convict since they've been founded in, what, 1998, 99 or something. And I noticed they're all black Africans, pretty much to a man. Mm. There's no white people convicted in the uh, International Criminal Court. There's no first world countries. There's no NATO members. There's no G7 countries, nothing. The, it, the whole thing was constructed to go after and condemn and sanction uh, countries that, uh, for whatever reason, weren't playing ball mm. with their former colonial masters. It's that simple. The Milosevic trial happened kind of off-site, okay, but that was a total sham, and history now shows what a sham that was, yeah. and that was to break up Yugoslavia. So there's so many things wrong with this. It's completely one-sided, and the rules-based international order, what is that? Where's the office? for the rules-based international order. Do they have an office? Is that a global government? What is this? They keep announcing this. It's nothing. It's a concept. It's whatever you want it to be. Mm. It's like we make the rules today and we'll change them tomorrow. And if you don't play by the rules, then you're in violation of the rules-based international order. Is, is this, Mike, is this uh, a court of aggression? Is there a statute of limitations on it? Good question, right? What about Libya? How about Libya? How about all the, uh, the, the arms and the weapons that were channeled into Syria to destabilize and destroy that country? Is, is that covered? What about Iraq? Let's talk about Iraq. Is that covered in the statute of limitations of this new tribunal? I think it's a great idea, but let's just queue up all the people who need to be there first. And let's go back to Vietnam. How far do we want to go back? I mean, you can even throw Hitler in there just to keep uh, keep everybody happy, 
okay? But it's, it's ridiculous. And what is this? They tried to do the same thing against Syria. They tried to create this uh, kind of legal framework to take down Bashar al-Assad. But all this is, Mike, at the end of the day, it's a toothless tiger. What it is, this just creates some kind of justification for ongoing sanctions. PR stunt. It's PR, but it, it creates, it, it's, on, it's an ongoing effort that gives some kind of a legal justification or some sort of padding for sanctions, nonstop sanctions. Look how long Syria's been under sanctions. Look how long Iran has been under sanctions. Uh, Iraq might even have some sanctions on it still, I don't know. Yemen, they've destroyed these countries. These very countries that are calling for this tribunal have wrecked and ruined and killed and murdered, maimed, and leveled whole countries and populations. It is just rich that they're uh, virtue signaling about this now, but, but still not even addressing the Ukrainian conflict, that the, the context that led to uh, the coup, the Maidan coup, and what happened after that, and what led to February 26th, 2022. They don't want to talk about that. That's not up for discussion. Yeah. This is such gaslighting, it's unbelievable. It is indeed. Right, okay, well, let's move on. And uh, uh, Vanessa Bailey is in Iran this week and next week. Uh, and uh, well, she sent us over uh, some video and a little report here. Now we're gonna uh, show the report um, on the British Embassy because the question is, uh, the question in my mind, Patrick has been, you know, what uh, awareness is there within Iran about the activities of foreign agents in the country and so on. So um, let's just have a look at the British Embassy uh, and Vanessa's uh, report here. So on my first day in Tehran, we visited the British Embassy, which has been, as you can see, daubed in graffiti, the entire length of uh, the security wall around the embassy. So the number on the column here, it's 120. It's the hour that they murdered General Soleimani. That's when they assassinated him. And here, the writing, it says, This was the time they martyred him. And basically, here we are taking it back. And here? And here it says, So it's kind of like a poem that would take revenge and calling the British spies, basically. <laughs> and then the, the long one here, it says, which means cut ties with the colonialists, with the imperialists. And here it says, Salam bar Shahidan, saying salutes to the marchers, basically. This is So the American embassy was called the den of espionage, and this is being called the den of the separatists. <laughs> and it's down with the British, down with England. So it says here, they have called for, for many years, they've called the British um, the old fox, because for many years it has been coming up with, with you know, ways to destroy nations. And then there's a hashtag, Haj Basim, says the name of Commander Soleimani. And the white one says, get, get out of my country. So 
so here it says your it says your history is dripping with blood and then it says basically you're criminals yeah don't don't film the rest <laughs> yeah yeah you can film here film the, yeah. the door yeah um so so this has the name of the british spy who was working with mi6 but he had he was working in some high levels of the country basically and he was executed and what they was arrested his name? here ali reza akbari who was with the mi6 and then the rest of it is just down with britain down with england and when I was filming the, the graffiti, I guess the security guy opened the side door to, to see what was going on. So I told him, no, it's fine, I'm British. <laughs> so he, he closed the door again and let me continue um, filming, assuming, I guess, that I was outraged um, by, the, by the graffiti. Actually, my team who are with me, including the translator, she originally said to me, you know, I don't really agree with this. We shouldn't, um, we should provide security as a country for the foreign embassies that are here, or we should not allow the embassies to, to exist inside uh, Iran. Then uh, she actually heard the story, which was told to us by a few people, that the British embassy was actually responsible for paying protesters in Tehran to paint uh, graffiti on all the walls of Tehran, criticizing um, the Iranian government and leadership. So then uh, her, her reaction changed uh, to the extent that, well, you know, if, if Britain, as per normal, is interfering in our state affairs and, and you know, the, the interference by, by the UK, by MI6, goes back decades, if not longer, and one interesting point, uh, one of the graffiti says Iranian Holocaust. Now, I didn't actually know about this, but in 1917 to 1919, Britain was responsible for mass starvation famine in Iran, uh, and a huge percentage of the population died during this time, not only from starvation, but also from the actions of uh, the British. So Britain, as I said, has a very long history of interference in Iranian state affairs, including, of course, in 1953, the coup against uh, President Mossadegh, who was trying to nationalize Iranian oil and to get it out of the grasp of the Iranian-British oil companies, of course, predominantly managed by the British. <laughs> and this has also uh, repercussions now, uh, at this time in Iran, that Britain is again uh, fomenting um, protests and demonstrations against the government because, of course, what does Britain want? It wants to reinstate the son of the Shah, who was deposed, of course, in the 1979 revolution, because for Britain particularly, this would mean that again they have a chance at securing uh, Iranian oil resources. So uh, clearly there is an element within the uh, Iranian population that is aware of uh, British interference. Uh, US as well, I'm not singling Britain out particularly here, but that it was the British embassy that, that we were looking at there. More, more than an element. 
Well, more than an element. One of the things that, that Vanessa has said to me is, and we'll have more from Vanessa on Monday, but one of the things that she said to me is that, that the feeling she gets from being in Iran now compared to the last time she was there, I think, which was 2016, 2017, something like that, the country has changed, uh, that, that it's a lot more fractious than it was. Uh, and she gets the feeling it, it feels to her a lot like Syria felt before 2011. Mm-hmm. And and I think that was a that that was a particularly worrying comment from her because uh, it, it with with what is clearly Western interference in the country, um, the opportunity to foment a Syria type internal conflict is is there, and that I think is uh, is would be really sad. Well, the the whole point of um, fom- you know fomenting instability in a country, whether it's Syria or Iran, is you need to attack the country economically first, and you need to attack its uh, agriculture, uh, its import export. You need to really tighten the screws to create a vice grip on society in the country. That's what happened in Syria that created the conditions uh, where you have uh, pockets of discontent. And then they open up for, you know, ask for Western help and sponsorship, whether it be uh, political, uh, financial weapons, fighters and things like that. And that sort of started the ball rolling in Syria. Um, But it couldn't sustain with the domestic um, uh, uh, opposition. So they needed then foreign fighters to come in. Iran is not Syria in that sense. It's much more... Uh, secure. It has a much more robust military. Um, there are so, so, there are some issues that can be exploited. The certainly the West, the U.S. and Britain tried to exploit the hijab protest uh, in September um, and tried to make that sort of their you know green revolution, as it were, mm. for 2022. But it, it it sort of fizzled out. And the reason it fizzled out is because that issue has been developing over a few years in Iran. Um, so there, there are you know women uncovered in different parts of the country, um, and there are they are having that national dialogue anyway. Um, it's just that the West uh, really focused on that and made it that that the big media uh, story. But it is interesting. She brings up a lot of uh, interesting points and Operation Ajax, of course, 1953. Yeah, uh, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, the prime minister at the time, overthrown. So yeah, the people there don't forget. They, there's a museum in Tehran uh, that's dedicated to the Iran-Iraq war. And they know exactly who was backing yeah. <laughs> who in that. And the, the casualties they sustained as a country um, are huge, much more than Vietnam on both sides, especially Iran. They lost more people than Iraq did. Mm. And that, that was in the 80s. So that's still fresh in a lot. So older generation were involved in that, mm. still fresh in their minds. In their minds, and it it occupies a big part of the national psyche, but also in terms of how their geopolitics are oriented, yeah. um, and the Islamic Revolution as well. So, um, it's not an easy nut to crack uh, for the Western imperialists. Iran has always been very stubborn and very um, uh, fortified in many different ways. Yeah. Okay. Okay. As I say, more from Vanessa on Monday. So look forward to that. Now let's come back to the UK then and the online safety bill. Uh, And that has now finished its uh, initial passage through the House of Commons. It's headed to the House of Lords. Uh, It had its first reading in the House of Lords this week, uh, and it will uh, continue its way through. Uh, But still new amendments coming. So here is Michelle Donnellan, the uh, Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, And of course, we've been reporting over the last couple of weeks that uh, uh, Sunak and Donnellan have been facing 
Tory rebellion over the issue of whether to uh, have custodial sentences for uh, for the uh, platforms, for the, the management of platforms that don't uh, follow the rules uh, that they want to set down in this bill. So here's what she's saying. I have engaged extensively with members of this House recently regarding a number of amendments which have been tabled for the report stage of the online safety bill. Uh, we've carefully reviewed new clause two, which sought to make senior managers criminally liable for breaches of the bill's child safety duties. I'm sympathetic to the aims of the amendment. Uh, we need to take the time to get this right. We intend to base our amendment on the Irish Online Safety and Media Regulation Act 2022, which introduces individual criminal liability for failure to comply with a notice to end contravention. Uh, the final government amendment at the end of ping pong between the Lords and the Commons will be carefully designed to capture instances where senior managers or those purporting to act in that capacity have consented or connived in ignoring enforceable requirements risking serious harm to children. So they keep pushing this child harm issue as if it's the real reason for the online safety bill, but let's keep going. The criminal penalties, including imprisonment and fines, will be commensurate with similar offences. So they are going to pursue, uh, to, they've capitulated to the uh, minority within the Tory party that's demanding this. They've decided that they're going to go with it. But in the meantime, then, uh, Michelle Donnellan has published an article in Conservative Home. Uh, Michelle Donnellan, the online safety bill, legal but harmful had to go and here's why. So she's trying to uh, suggest that, that this is no longer a thing. Uh, but let's just have a look at what she has to say here. Frankly, in my view, she says, the social media giants have no right to tell adults what legal content they can or cannot see and neither does the government. Let's just read that again. Social media giants have no right to tell adults what legal content they can or cannot see and neither does the government. So the, that paragraph, she says that. And in a later paragraph, she says, for adults, my new triple shield mechanism delivers choice. Where content is illegal, clearly it should be removed. If a platform says in its terms and conditions that it does not allow certain content, they must keep that promise and remove it. But did she not say that platforms don't have a right to decide what kind of content people see? But now she's saying they do. In fact, they're required to remove it if, if they say in their terms and conditions that it's not acceptable. It, there's, it's, there's no consistency in the argument here. No, it, it's it's rife with con contradictions, Mike, and that's because when you get into the business of censoring speech and controlling speech, all you get are contradictions right. and hypocrisy. Right. It, she goes on then. Uh, likewise, where their terms and conditions permit certain content, social media companies will no longer be able to arbitrarily remove this content. Sorry, show me a set of terms and conditions which define what type of content is permitted. You can't possibly list the types of content which are permitted in terms and conditions. Of course, they list the types of content which are not permitted, but they, they can't possibly list the, the types of content that are permitted. So that comment from her is complete nonsense, right? But here's the thing. She's arguing here that she's gotten rid of the whole concept of legal but harmful, and we can debate uh, what the term harmful means or who it is that's being harmed. Uh, but here's uh, one of the other things that she wrote in her written answer. Uh, aiding, abetting, counselling, uh, conspiring, etc. those offences. Now, she's talking here about uh, illegal migration and people smuggling into the UK. And she's suggesting that posting videos of people crossing the channel, which show this type of activity of bringing people into the UK in a positive light, 
could be an offence that is uh, committed online. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick, but at this point, it is not illegal to film anybody coming across the channel and posting it online, but they're going to try to make it, even though it's legal, they're going to say it's harmful. They're not defining who it's harmful to, but they're going to make it uh, a criminal offence to do that. So the, the whole issue of legal but harmful isn't really going away. It's kind of being uh, sort of pushed to a lower priority, at least in terms of the headlines, but it's still there. This is confusing, Mike. So if you show it in a positive light, in other words, if you're cheering for... If you're cheering for uh, migration, now I'm, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we should be cheering for migration by but, any means, but the but point still, is it's not illegal. It's a thought crime. Right. It's what political. has the mainstream media been doing over the last several years but cheering for migration, right? Mm -hmm. And so when they do it, though, that will be protected because they're in the media. But if somebody else who feels that it's a good thing that people, that migrants are coming to this country. Like a resident who lives in Kent or Folkestone or Dover or something like that, who's concerned about this, will they? Well, no, they would be posting, they, uh, they'd be posting videos that are against the migration. Suppose they were in favor of it. That, how can that be a, a criminal offense? That's just their opinion. So this is something which is legal, but she believes is harmful. And therefore, the, the, the concept is still there. What, what they're missing here, Mike, is they cannot prove any mechanism that if somebody from Kent was filming a boat coming across the channel and said, yay, more immigrants, show me how that translates into any actual harm. If it's some random post on Twitter or even if, you know, it's like the, the, some people say, give, give it a thumb, 100 people give it a thumbs up. What exactly does that mean? She, and, and she where, is arguing, where is the social harm in it? She is arguing that it could be interpreted as promotion of people smuggling, which is complete nonsense. But it, anyway, it is. No, you have to be you have to get more granular and more specific. They don't want to. No. They want to keep it totally wide open, Correct. arbitrary so that they can move the goalposts as and when they want. That is the problem with this. And this is also the problem with um, the, the online harm concept. Um, right now, as things are, with the current laws on the books, Mike, okay, police have certain powers to investigate if there's a criminal or a crime committed or it's incitement. There are already laws on the books for that. Can, they, can the government show that the laws that are right now, today, mm. are inadequate and are somehow causing a spike in all of these sort of crimes? I'm not talking about complaints or random uh, things here and there. I'm talking about anything substantial that can move uh, the dial socially or uh, on a civilizational level. The answer is no. I certainly don't see it reported in the media. I see a lot of people talking about we need to do more, we need to do more. But what are they saying? That the police aren't uh, aren't prosecuting? Is that what they're saying? Or like, it's it's really difficult to say. It seems like they're wanting to run this whole Orwellian agenda forward without showing that there's a basis or a need for it in the first place. Indeed. Well, let's uh, let's stick with the Orwellian part of it, at least. And let's look at the BBC here. Uh, this was a fantastic article. Greta Thunberg, German police deny protest detainment was staged. Now, we showed the Greta Thunberg video, uh, I think, on Extra on Wednesday. And and uh, it was absolutely clear that the thing was staged, or at least it seemed, was clear to me anyway, uh, as they posed for film, for video footage and photographs to be taken. Uh, so, but the German police have denied that the protest detainment was staged, but let's look at how the BBC reported this. Uh, German police have denied being extras for Greta Thunberg after false claims uh, that her detainment in, at a protest in Western Germany was staged. 
a viral post falsely claimed uh, that the climate activist was being held police was all set up for the cameras. So on the basis, it appears, on the basis of a German police denial, because they were embarrassed about being caught out on it, perhaps, uh, the, the, the BBC is now definitively stating that these claims are false. And they're not in a position to do that because they, they have no idea whether the German police are lying or not. Uh, would the German police lie and, uh, if they're embarrassed in this way? I suspect they would. Yeah, because there's a huge political price to pay. Of course there is. And it goes on. Here's another example of it where they've taken uh, an image of a tweet. Uh, they've they've uh, removed the, the details of who the tweet, who made the tweet. And then they've placed the word, plastered the word false across it. Uh, and the tweet said, the fake arrest of Greta Thunberg, all set up for the cameras. Um, so... If that's their opinion that it's a fake arrest and it's staged, well, the evidence suggests that it very well could be. So who's the BBC to play gatekeeper and literally positioning themselves as the ministry of truth? Or as Jacinda Ardern said, we, we, we are your single source of truth. Single source of truth. That's what the BBC claims to be or appears to be. Uh, and so there you go. I just wanted to, to make that point. Now, just to finish off for today, uh, I just wanted to let everybody know that Christopher Chope's uh, two uh, vaccine-related bills uh, continue their way through Parliament. They've got a second reading uh, coming up on the 3rd of March, 2023. Uh, so this is the COVID-19 vaccine damage bill. It's private member's bill, so Christopher Chope pushing that forward. Uh, so that's one. And the other one that he has is the COVID-19 vaccine diagnosis and treatment bill. Um, both of these, I believe, should be uh, getting some support. Uh, and so 3rd of March is the second reading. Plenty of opportunity for anybody that's watching this program to be uh, lobbying their MPs and getting support for this. Uh, I think it needs everybody to be getting behind it. Uh, so that I just wanted to, uh, to make that point. Uh, look, we're going to end there for today. Uh, thank you, Patrick, for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Vanessa will have more for us over the coming days. Um, and uh, we would be back for some extra in a couple of minutes, but otherwise at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, have a great weekend and we'll see you then.